Welcome to The Positioning Show, where we discuss topics related to the practical application of positioning for marketing, sales, and product teams. I'm April Dunford, a consultant, author, and the world's leading expert on positioning for B2B technology companies. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Positioning Show. Hey, today I got a special guest. I don't have guests all the time, so when I do, you know it's going to be good. So my guest today is Bruno Aziza. I've known Bruno for a while now. We worked together when he was running data and analytics products at Google Cloud. And we worked together specifically on BigQuery and a couple of other products. Bruno's a neat guy. He's done a bunch of stuff at big companies, like most recently Google, but also Oracle and Microsoft. But he's also been involved in launching and growing a series of startups. So he's full of really interesting wisdom that flip-flops between big companies and small companies, and he's got a real perspective on that. Bruno's a data guy, and I love that because I have a bit of a data background too, but I think it's neat being a data person at this particular juncture in history with, with the stuff that's going on with machine learning and artificial intelligence. So he knows a lot about that. Today, Bruno is a partner with Capital G. Capital G is Alphabet's growth stage fund. They work with companies like Databricks and CloudStrike and Stripe. I'm really excited to see what Bruno does over there. I think that's a match made in heaven. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think it's full of really chunky, good nuggets and insight from a person who's literally been there, done that. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Go ahead and have a listen. Bruno, so good to have you on the show. I'm really happy to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Hey, you know, you've got a really interesting background. Like you've done a lot of stuff at startups and a bunch of stuff at big companies. So I kind of wanted to start by jumping into that a little bit. So I, I know early in your career, you spent a stretch like seven years, I think, at Microsoft. And then you made the decision to quit that, go to Silicon Valley, you know, work with a startup. Like, was that a hard decision to make? Like, tell me a bit about that transition. Well, first of all, thank you for thinking that I have an interesting background. Uh, you're <laughs> right. I did I did small, medium, and large companies. In fact, my, my first job was a startup in Silicon Valley that we ended up selling to Symantec. And then from that, I went to Business Object, which at the time was this small French data company and became a sensation when IPO. We bought companies like Crystal Reports, a great Canadian company, I'm sure you know. Oh, I remember the Crystal Reports acquisition. It was a big deal in Canada. It was a, and I love coming to Vancouver to work on the integration. And it's after business objects that I moved up to Seattle to go to Microsoft, following my boss, essentially, uh, there to uh, work on the product team on the next generation of data products they were building. And so I had a, a great time in Seattle. My wife actually is originally from Seattle. So it was it was great to go back to uh, where she'd grown up. And I spent seven years there working on transformation projects every time. Every time, I think, throughout the seven years, every 18 months or so, I changed a different project. At first, I was in the office team. Then I was into SQL Server. Then I did uh, field operations. And then I came back to, to SQL. So for me, it wasn't hard to make the transition because the whole time, my goal was, how do I become a CEO one day? So I, I was looking for those experiences. So even though I worked at Microsoft, it, it didn't feel like a big company thing. It felt like working on transformational projects every time to you know, build new products and you know, take the company where it might not have been before. The decision of coming back to Silicon Valley was an opportunity to come in and be one of the first executives at a startup here. And I thought, you know, I've got all this experience that I can now take to a much smaller structure 
and then help scale that. So that it wasn't really hard. It was kind of, for me, a continuation of what I was kind of setting myself up for. It definitely felt like a different experience. We could talk about that, but it wasn't a hard decision. But you know what? Not everybody, not everybody says that. Like I, I worked in big companies. Like I spent a good stretch at IBM and like the people at IBM used to say, like you either quit after two years or you're in forever. <laughs> so I think, I don't know. I think that says something about you and your entrepreneurial background a bit that you didn't think that was a hard thing after seven years, or maybe it says something more about Microsoft versus IBM, but I'm not sure. But like, so, so you did the transition, like, you know, what was that like? Like, what, what were the biggest things that you learned in that transition? Well, the first, the first thing, you know, moving back down to Silicon Valley, it's a shock because, you know, in, in Seattle, you got to imagine, you know, my wife's from there. We have a Mm. house that's beautiful in the beautiful area my 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 kids were fairly young and so accepted the job uh with this idea it was like hey it's going to be the ceo and me and we're going to build this amazing company it was a company based in israel at the time called sisense and they had had operations and engineering in israel but they really wanted to go big in the us and so they picked the ceo and i to to do this well the first shock i'll tell you is that between the time that I accepted the job and the time that I started, the board had uh, let go of the CEO. So while I was here thinking, hey, I'm starting this gig with someone that I know that hired me out of Microsoft. In fact, it was just me moving back down to Silicon Valley. So I really had to do everything at the beginning. Luckily, the team in Israel, you know, they flew out. And help me Did out. you ever think maybe I shouldn't do this thing? Like, you know, well, there, was a moment, yeah. there was a moment where I called my wife. I mean, you know, literally I told my team at Microsoft that I was leaving and I got this text from the CEO saying, call me immediately. I pulled over, called mm -hmm. him and said, I'm gone from the company. So it's just you. And so I immediately talked to the founders, but for me, and they were worried that I was not going to join, but for me, it was the right moment. It was the right move. I knew it was going to be a massive transition for my family primarily, but in terms of what I was looking for, you know, I'd always been looking for, are there experiences that, you know, have never been done before because I'm this type of person that's so going back to your first question there is that it's not really the structure that matters to me as much as more the project itself. And people typically have offered me opportunities to do those types of jobs. So this one was the next level because not only was it a smaller structure, different environment, the majority of the team was in Israel, but now it was without the CEO. And so I had to discover all that, you know, that world without really uh, anyone. But the founders were great. The board was great. I was always remember the first board meeting. And now Sisense is this amazing company, hundreds of employees based in New York. And so it's the, the end of the story is a great one because, you know, it was scary at the beginning, but it became something fairly big at the end. So I'm really proud of that experience. Yeah. Like, was there anything like, you know, again, seven years at Microsoft, you go to the smaller thing. Was there anything that you came in and went, oh, this is surprising. This is how things work here. Like, did anything surprise you? A few things uh, were different, uh, but they didn't surprise me in the sense that I was kind of preparing myself uh, to think about it. But the, the first bit I would say for anyone listening to us is, you know, when you start your your companies, you always have this this conviction of how important what you're working on is. And really, Nobody cares, really. And so you got, you got to really embrace that. In fact, I have a prop here. I got, to, I got to show you at some point, but it's a poster that says, nobody cares, population 7 billion. And if you start that as the, the principle, it, it prevents you from you as a startup entrepreneur to think about, oh my gosh, the thing I invented, you know, everybody needs to really care about. It's vital to them. And the reality is that it doesn't. So 
it creates this, you know, a question for you. How do I, you know, how do I get above the noise? How do I make myself relevant? Who do I want to be relevant to? Right. Often I think entrepreneurs think they're solving for everybody and that's, that's not the right answer. And so definitely in in this first phase year, going from a structure where Microsoft was giving me marketing and all these, this amazing ecosystem going down now to a company with everybody's in Israel. And I'm the only one in the US trying to build the operation, build a name, get in front of analysts and customers. I had to start with this assumption that, look, my message has to be 10 times more relevant because yeah. nobody cares. Yeah, it's such a such a good point, like particularly from a marketing perspective. And that for me, that was a big thing going from a big company to a small company. Like big company, you got this brand recognition, everybody knows you, like there's pull, right? Yeah. And then you get to the small company and there's just none of that. None. That's right. Like you're like you're right. Nobody cares. And you know, even in some some cases, even if you're listening to us and you're mid-stage or even a large company, I think it's still a very good principle to have because yeah. You know, you've got to go from the outside in rather than the inside. Of course, what you've built is cool. Of course, you have a really good reason for having built what right. you did. And there's also the world that the the market is in is very different. So understanding that context and almost having that context override everything you do is more beneficial than trying to convince people of your context. And I think this is true for engineering. This is true from sales. This is true for Marketing, certainly if you're a product manager, you know, I, I started as a product manager. So for me, that nobody cares. I have it actually in front of my desk because it's a it's a core principle I look at every day. Why should they care? What's going on with them that should make them care? Yeah. You know, it's funny, like, you know, sometimes I sometimes I get talking to the marketers, right? And the marketers get in this little bubble. And so, you know, every once in a while, and this happens about every five years, this this thing goes around where they'll say, you know, we're not just marketing a database, man, like we're starting a movement. And I'm like, yeah. are we though? Like, are yeah. we? I think that's, yeah, like you're, you're giving the, you're, you're assuming the customer cares about this a lot more. Like yeah. the customers got pain. We're trying to resolve that pain. Like I, they're not necessarily coming to me because they want to join a movement. Yeah. I mean, it's a good aspiration to have. I think that that's great to say, hey, ultimately this thing becomes a movement. But the reality, I think, for you to be meaningful, it's not even caring about the technical problem they're trying to solve. I mean, like, what do they really care about? And my discovery really has been, I'm an agency for my customers. What they care about is their career. Forget the technical problem. And so if you can have empathy for that and realize, look, when they make, particularly if you're If you're a large company, I think you still need to have that as a principle, but particularly if you're an early stage company, they're making a bet on you. And that bet is a very personal one. And so your job is, how do you make him successful in this current job? How do you make him successful in the next one? How does this bet enable them to get promoted, get the next job at the company they want to work for? And so having empathy for that is is really, really important. Um, You know, the other lesson here is, and I say this to all my uh, tech CEOs, you know, I had the opportunity of working with tech CEOs, marketing CEOs, and sales CEOs. And they each have, I think, if they're listening to us, I think you got to have this sense of awareness that as a tech CEO, you are not the customer. Maybe when you get started, you know, you so build true. it for yourself because you've identified the problem. But as you grow, this connection to the problem, the way you used to solve it is going to go away. So you really have to think about the customer is the customer 
right? Um, yeah. This notion of understanding jobs to be done was also a very important notion because it's all about, it was about focusing, right? It's, it's when you're an entrepreneur, just like you said, I want to build a movement. The world's my market. Not really. You know, right. you're, you're, you're building a solution that is tied to a personal bet that the buyer is making. And that's who you're designing for. And it also means you have to choose your customers very wisely. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, in the case of the other startups that I've done. This idea of, is this the right customer for me? Am I the right solution for them? So being humble about that, I think is, is extremely important. Now, you know, I had to think about this a lot at Microsoft, but in the way the penalty of being wrong on that in a large structure is a lot less when you're an early stage company. And so you really have to write those things in front of your desk, you know? Yeah. Nobody cares. You're not the customer. Choose your customer wisely. I think those things you gotta wake up and repeat them because it's so tempting. How do you know, how do you know? Like how do you know you got the right customer? Or or maybe a better question is how do you know you got the wrong one? Like like you got any opinions yeah. about that? Absolutely. So I think, you know, I'll answer how do you know you've got the wrong one first, because I think those are the easiest ones to figure out. You know, what we built is we built this thing called the bullseyes. And so this bullseye basically for our company was 15 dimensions that we're looking at. And your company might have three, five. It doesn't really matter. In our case, it was 15 because we're data people. And so we love to look at data. But it's simple things like the location of that customer. You know, so, so many startups, and this happens, by the way, in mid-stage companies as well, they have this ambition, like you said, you know, we're, we're building a movement and we're changing for the world. And they have no operation in Asia-Pac. And all of a sudden, they're going to pick the largest bank in Asia-Pac. And right. so this is just a typical mistake where this is a really difficult customer to support and make happy if just the location is wrong. And you've got this, this temptation as an entrepreneur is like, oh my gosh, I met the chief data officer or the executive making decision. He gets me. I get them. That's not a criteria. That yeah. should not be a criteria. So I think that's the wrong type of customer where, you know, they're saying the words, but they're in the wrong location or what you build is really not doing what they're looking for. I mean, totally when I was at Oracle, I run into customers where they thought they bought something, but in reality, they bought something else. So having this, you know, frank conversations like, yes, you can extend the product to achieve what you're looking for, but it's not built for that. I have this principle we use, actually I learned this at Microsoft, core design, right? Center of design. What mm. was the product built for? And because of that, it, of course, you know, engineers are very creative and they want to extend beyond that. But I think you got to bring them back all the time to like, is this the center of design of this product? When I was at Microsoft, we had this debate around scorecards and dashboard. And what is a scorecard? What is a dashboard? Which product and so forth? And anytime I see that, you know, I run back and take the team back to, let's start with what is the center of design of this product? in isolation from the buzzwords that you hear. And so I think that's that's a key that's a key criteria in choosing the right customer. Are they right in the bullseye of the center of design for a product? Yeah, I actually love that. I, I think that's really hard at startups. Like, it, you know, I think a lot of startups at the beginning, like you're just hustling around trying to get any business you can, right? And you yeah. sort of get into this mindset of, I had a old boss that used to talk about, you know, we're in the we're in the phase where we're taking our victim as we find them. <laughs> and it's like, you don't want to be in that phase very long, man, because this is a really inefficient way to run a business. You know that I like the victim, uh, the victim terminology, but 
But it's true that in the iteration phase, you know, you've built maybe a, a first kind of draft of your product and you're trying to shape it. And I think that's fine. The first 10 customers, but there's some basics you should miss, right? You shouldn't compromise. Location is, is a, I think, is, is yeah. a basic one. But I still see a lot of organizations make that mistake is you got to be close to your customers geographically and close to the center of design. So that I just would not compromise on that. Um, and then ultimately, you need to have your opinion on, you know, how the, a particular problem should be solved. And, and if you compromise on that as well, then you end up supporting a product that you really didn't want to build in the first place. And so yeah. you got a question, you said, are you even in the, in the right business, right? That's a big deal because, you know, that's the thing. Like, like the thing that makes your product special is this point of view on the market. And so if you start to compromise on that, then it just undermines all your differentiation. Now you're like, now you're really in trouble. Yeah. You know, I always start the conversation with my teams when, when I, you know, build a go-to-market function or, or, you know, how we think about going out through partnerships and so forth. What is our belief, right? I call this, um, and, and I'm sure it's, it's not me. I don't think I invented this, but I relate to it by calling it a identity differentiation. You know, we can talk about the things we have, but I think what we should really think about is that what is it that makes us? What is true to your identity? Because it's very difficult to be chosen for a different identity. What is it that, you know, don't try to live somebody else's life because it's already taken. But what I mean by that is, you know, you're a company that has started with a set of beliefs that has a team that has a particular identity don't be shy about it because that, you know, is the reason for why you're building products the way you're building them. That is the reason for why you're choosing certain partners and certain customers. And yep. so if you're a starting team, I would always go back to these first principles. What is the core center of design of my product? What is the identity I have that nobody can take away from me? And yep. what is the belief that we have on where the space is going? If you have those three answers to those three things, just try to stay tight on them because it's very easy, it's very tempting in the face of, well, revenue, frankly, to compromise in them. But if you compromise too much, then you end up having a very costly organization. And you know, the one reason for why companies uh, run out of business is because they run out of revenue, right? So yeah. <laughs> you got to think about the cost equation of making these compromises as well. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's, let's move to the next place you were at. Well, I don't know if it was the next one. I know you were at at scale. Yeah. And so, you know, later on you landed there, like, like, you know, what was your role there? So I call myself the chief disruption officer there because it's, <laughs> it's really difficult to have a role. Job. <laughs> it's really difficult to have a role because, or job description, because I was at AdScale before AdScale was AdScale. So mm. the way we got to AdScale is Dave Mariani was a customer of mine at Microsoft and he was solving this really complex problem at a time of where we had big data, but we couldn't do fast queries on top of big data. So he came up with this idea of the semantic layer. And mm -hmm. we were talking about it at dinner one night. And then he's a great entrepreneur, he's a tech uh, CEO. And he went out and said, Bruno, I'm just quitting. I'm going to go do that. And so I couldn't leave the company I was at. So I became an advisor of the company. And then when he raised his first seed, I think, is when I joined the company. And I was basically, the job description is you're the non-engineer. I'm the, I'm the non-developer, basically. So what that means is <laughs> I'm doing- early, You know, early early tech companies, it's like that. It's like, I, I got <laughs> 9 million developers that I'm the person who's not that. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so it helped me to have domain expertise. It helped me to be a product person. It helped me to have a go-to-market experience because 
That's all we had to build with to think about, okay, what's the product strategy? What's the go-to-market? We didn't have a marketing department. So how do we uh, drive the business? How do we build partnerships? Um, Which customers do we choose, right? Because Dave had started with friends of Dave, right? When you start as 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 a seed entrepreneur like that, you got your first friends that are willing to spend money and shape the product with you. And that's great for the first 10. But then when you get to 100 customers, 200 customers, you kind of have to have a method. I build the inside sales team as well. And so um, because I'm French, I call myself myself Jack of all trades. But that's really what it was, is I was doing everything else that was non-development. And my connection, I guess what was really successful in that in that job is because my connection to the product and the customer was so strong, you know, I've been in the data world my entire career. I, I've been in data since data didn't matter to people. And now finally it's front and center. But having that connection really helped me be effective for the company. And we, we went on and raised, you know, multiple rounds after that. Um, hmm. But th- th- that was kind of the chief disruption officer is probably the, worst, the best way that I can describe it. Mm, so interesting. So we we talked about, you know, some of the stuff that you did at that job earlier. And like one of the things that I thought was really neat, like like personally, in a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is really around like, how do we get better at marketing and sales at helping the customer understand the whole market so that they can make better purchase decisions? And so you told me this great story about some stuff that you worked at there that had that goal in mind. So I, can you tell That's, us a little bit about that? Yeah. And this goes back to this idea of how do I relate to the customer pain, right? And, and I know we'll talk about jobs to be done in a little bit, but the first, you know, Inside, if you will, was well. There's six engineers and me. Uh, <laughs> this is we don't have a marketing database, and nobody knows us, right? So we barely have a logo on the site. And so the question was, what was the leading problem in the industry during that time, and what made us so different about our perspective on that problem? And the problem at the time was that. There was big data and nobody can do business intelligence on it. It was too slow and so forth. So everybody was saying, well, you got to extract the data and then pre-process it so people can analyze it. And our belief was, no, that's plumbing. Like, why would you need to do that? You should be able to just query the data however you want. And I looked at market research in the space and Gartner really wasn't bullish on this interactive uh, Mm -hmm. data on top of big data. They were really kind of saying, hey, there's no market there. But I also knew that there were large organizations in that ecosystem that were on, in the process of going IPO, Cloudera, Hortonworks, Mapar. Right. And I knew all the CMOs there. And so I was saying, hey, are we at a disconnect here? And identifying this disconnect really put me in the center of the conversation because I had a different point of view on something that the leading research firm, Gartner, was saying there's no market, but yet that I knew there were companies going public. And so what we decided to do is to launch what we called the Big Data Maturity Survey came up with 20 questions that I knew would be answers that the customers, the prospects, the market really wanted to know about. So how long have people adopted technology X, Y, and Z? What are the top use cases? What do I marry this technology with? What's the top BI tool for this technology? So I, I built those questions and then I partnered with the Cloudera, the Hortonworks and the MapR who had a much larger marketing database. Actually, it was easy because I had zero in my marketing database. So anybody that had one was bigger <laughs> than me. Um, right. I told them, I said, look, the value for you is I came up with the questions. You can influence them if you want, but you can email that to your customers and prospects because when they answer that, 
Well, you'll get better data on these particular questions. So you'll be able to qualify your customers and choose your customers better. Of course, you know, it was a clear wall between these three vendors because they're kind of competing with each other. But for me, I had then the opportunity to collect that data holistically and also form a better opinion on the market. So not only did I build a better go-to-market for my partners uh, by providing something that's very relevant to customers because they didn't have answer from anybody else, but also became now the center of the conversation when press and analysts needed to have an opinion, well, they would Google at scale because they knew that we had uh, you know, uh, unique information that was informing our point of view. So the whole thing really worked uh, very well for us. And we ended up doing this every year. I think I was uh, at scale for four years. I think we did this data maturity survey for three years in a row. Every, every year, it just kept having more and more answers, becoming relevant and, and so forth. I think that's amazing. And, you know, and I think it's like what I love about that story is that, you know, customers are overwhelmed with like just facts and data, but what they really want is insight. And so I think as vendors, like a lot of times we think that's not our job. Like we think that's Gartner's job or somebody else's job to figure out the insight part. But I think a lot of times as vendors, we're really well positioned to be the people to provide that insight because we have the connections, we have the data, we have the ability to go do this stuff. And particularly where the major analysts have just kind of missed it or don't care about it because it doesn't align with their business. Like there's such an opportunity. Yeah, or it's not their business, right? And, and I always think about going back to how you relate to your customers, right? If you think about what is their problem? Their problem is they want to be promoted. They want to get the next right. job. And what is the number one fear they have? They don't ever want to be behind. And so when, when you say insight, I would say even the next level of insight, what I call the nirvana of an insight is, let me tell you something about you that you probably don't know about yourself. Right. And once you're able to say that, this is why benchmarks work so well, right? It's because you're always operating in this fear that it's possible you're not maximizing your own potential. Well, how are you going to know that? And so that's why by trusting me as a vendor that has access to maybe a broader network or a different perspective on the market, I can provide you that insight. And even better than if you're behind, guess what? I can accelerate you into what could be your full potential. So it creates this value exchange that's different from me telling you, let me tell you why my software is superior than the other option you're looking at. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I think that's where a lot of organizations kind of miss the the market a little bit because we're competing at the feature level, but really you should be competing at the service level for your customers. What are you the are you providing them with the best service with their goal? And their goal is be best in class, get the next job, not buy the best software. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's totally it. It's totally it. I agree with that. I love I love that story so much. The other bit about it too, if I told you how much it cost me to do it, you won't believe it. I basically did it on SurveyMonkey. It cost me, <laughs> it actually cost me $0 because in Perfect. doing it, it scaled so fast and we got so many concurrent answers that I had to call the CEO of SurveyMonkey and say, hey, I think I found a, pro- a product issue on the <laughs> side. And he gave me access to SurveyMonkey for free, I think for three years. So it ended up costing me nothing, just the, the creativity, the space and the time to build these partnerships with these companies. It's such a great story because like even a small company can just punch way above their weight on this kind of stuff, you know, yeah. if they come into it with the right attitude. Yeah. Nice. And you know, it was, it was a leading topic, you know, at that scale, we went from seed and I went all the way to uh, raising the C round 
And we use data about that survey, even in our perspective on where we're going. And so it really helped all parts of, of the business. So it was really an amazing project. Yeah, love it. So switching gears a little bit, like, so you and I met when you were running data and analytics at Google. And so like, so you did a bunch of stuff in the small companies, like how'd you end up back at the big company again? How'd that work? Yeah, well, so, you know, what's been great about the the network I've built is it's always been in data in, in analytics. And so uh, yeah. I was running outbound product management at Google and the way when you and I met and the way I got there was really through my network. One of the uh, uh, guys who brought me into Google is someone I worked with at Microsoft maybe 15 years before we launched the first data mm. marketplace. And uh, at the time, uh, Google Cloud had gotten a, a new CEO, uh, Thomas Curian, and Thomas Curian was talking to my friend about this idea of building outbound product management. And he was asking, what is outbound product management? So he called me and he said, hey, how do you define it? And we talked for about a year. And after a while, I said, Bruno, you should come and do this here. Like, you know, nobody else can explain this to me better than you can. So just come and build it. And that's how I got I got to Google. I had been in the Google ecosystem before because at scale, we built a, a partnership with Google through uh, great customers we had. And so I already knew the partnership folks and I knew the product folks. And so it was kind of an easy shift, if you will. But it's kind of interesting because, yes, Google is a large is a large organization. But when I came in, my team was very small because we were starting hmm. this outbound product management discipline that really was just nascent at the company. And we ended up, you know, with a lot of outbound product managers uh, after after three years. But every time there's a trend, right? I think people pick me for, hey, come and do this thing that we don't know how to figure it out. And then we know along the way you're going to be creative enough and you're going to bring people in your network that's going to help us scale this thing. Yeah, that's so cool. It's such a big deal, like network stuff in tech. Like, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, people when they're junior, like sometimes I think don't really get that. And then at some point it's like, man, like all the different people you meet along the way, holy cow. But so when we were working together at Google, like one of the things we were working on was helping the sales team really understand how to how to pull together a story and how to pitch some of this data stuff. In particular, we were spent some time looking at BigQuery. Yeah. And so... Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what was the biggest challenge there and some of the stuff you were working on there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that experience with you was amazing. I think, first of all, you know, my boss gave me your book and I read the book over a weekend. I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta call April. This is crazy because <laughs> all the work on positioning that's before you is really consumer heavy. And, yeah. you know, there of course, there's some lessons we can learn about consumer, but the enterprise business, particularly the data business, and might and have a bias on that, is really different. It's difficult for me to take a lesson from a consumer brand and apply it directly to my customer base. And so that was the first bit is identifying someone that could come in and I got our business, got the enterprise bit out there. And the exercise really, the, the challenge, I think, is how do you align, not just sales, but it's it's aligning the product organization, the engineering organization, the marketing the the sales organization, the services organization, the solutions organization. What's great about Google is you've got these really smart, ambitious leaders across the organization that are driving, you know, to the next thing, and that's very beneficial because you can tap into that energy, uh, and if you can align it, then it's really an incredible company to work for, and you know, yeah. it's amazing. I mean, it's it's one of those companies where it's incredible what we 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 get done, right? And so for me, that was 
the opportunity is bring you in to help me align everybody around key principles. You know, who's the customer? What is our unique differentiation? What is, like we said earlier, the center of design? What are the specific jobs to be done? So one of the methodologies, you know, you have to bring, and again, my boss had talked about this. I'm I'm a big fan of the jobs to be done methodology. And we really took the team through that because it's really easy, I think, when you are a product-led organization to kind of really focus on your features and then realize, yeah. wait, they're not buying the feature. You know, they're buying the solution to the, <laughs> the problem. And so be solution-oriented more than product-oriented was, was kind of the opportunity there, which we ended up doing beautifully. I mean, we, you know, we had a large portfolio. I mean, we had over 10 services. And so really centering yeah. it around BigQuery and starting with that, out to the rest of the portfolio was was really uh, kind of the goal there. Yeah, yeah. I thought we did good work there. Um, like honestly, um, uh, it was transformational work. I think uh, you know you thank shouldn't you. be yeah. about that. Uh, it affected our demos as well. It was not just the positioning and the sales deck and all that. It also affected how we presented our products. I, I don't know if you remember, you know this this demo that I that I built. Uh, a lot of it was you know taking your input and then kind of taking the input of, of the people around the table. I also love the arguments we had, right? I mean, I think that's also something people might not be um, uh, comfortable with, or they might be, you know, reluctant. Create the arguments, push people. I mean, I remember one of, we did this workshop with you over five days, I think, I think one of the first days, I think, and it was actually, I was confronting my friend who had brought me into Google and he said something and I said, no, you know, that's not true. And I, you know, Here's what the customers are saying. And so being able to have this confrontation around what we know about the customer is, you know, I think is very effective. The, the confrontation I would tell people not to have is a confrontation of opinions that never works. But the confrontation about facts and data we have about customers, uh, at least for us, always work because we have engineers that love to have this data from customers. They really thrive on, on that. I don't know how it works in other organizations, but I can tell you, if you can bring customer data to the conversation, then everything's off the table. You, you, you should disagree because that's who you're serving, right? I always tell yeah. my engineers, the customer is the customer, right? That's why they're called the customer because they, in fact, are the customer. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and so, but bringing that data at scale is what really kind of switches people's uh, you know, perspective. Well, and like one of the things that I think is really interesting doing this work is that, you know, what we when we get a cross-functional team together like this to talk about product stuff and go to market and how customers buy, like sales knows something, product knows something, marketing knows something, and everybody's right. Yeah. But it, it's kind of like, you know, it's like that thing where you got the elephant and everyone's got a blindfold and the person hanging on the leg says, what is it? Yeah. Oh, it's a tree. And the one on the tail says, oh, it's a snake. Like, it's a bit like that. Like, we actually need everybody to bring their data to the table. We need everybody to come with their point of view on this stuff. And we need to have a little bit of a disagreement about it and get to the point where we are all in agreement and alignment. And that, that's, we don't always have an opportunity to do that. And so I think like one of the things that I try to do is be that opportunity to get everybody yeah. together and have that conversation because otherwise it, it's rare that it actually happens. And you can be the the ref in the middle, right? Who has no yeah. agenda and coming and say, Hey, Bruno, you said something here that sounds different from what this other person said, what did you really yeah. mean? You know, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Ray Dalio's work, right? And, and so Ray yeah. Dalio talks about this idea of being hyper-realistic, 
And I think you got to start as that as the foundation. Like when you kick off the workshop is like, there's nobody's going to be told they're wrong. You had just right. have to start with be hyper-realistic of why you're saying something like what's behind the statement, because often, you know, you know, engineers are very passionate about why they built something a certain way. And they always want to believe that this thing can also do all these other things they've got in their mind, but actually is not possible or it probably is not ideal. And then the sales team is going to come in and say, well, I just talked to the chief data officer here and, and she told me this. Okay, but is that a trend? Is right. that a rule or is that an exception? And so we all have that. The marketers have their own context as well. Uh, and so saying, you know, as a, as a principle, when you start the workshop that let's be aware of that. That, yeah. that what we're bringing into the conversation, so we don't end up with, you know, the wrong, uh, the wrong results. We all yeah. want. Agreement. It's actually a really big deal in in B two B, especially if we're doing more enterprise stuff. That sometimes we'll have one or two customers that are just absolute whales, yeah. and they get way more of our attention. They tend to be cranky and noisy and whatever. But, it, but we have to be careful that if they're an outlier, we got to treat them like an outlier. Like we got to put them off yeah. to the side and say, we're not actually positioning for that because we're never going to do a deal that looks like that again. I agree. And, you know, what I've learned through my startups, you know, they're all different types, right? In the case of, of SciSense, it was very inbound focus, right? So lots of people that are calling in through the demo and so forth. And so they were the users. In the case of, of AdScale, it was more account-based marketing, more outbound we kind of knew who the company was and we try to understand the buying committee. And so yep. here it's not just the customer, but it's who at that customer. Um, because, you know, we used to have this saying, we called it the, the, the silent bully, right? So you're, you're talking to someone who is saying, I've got this decision that I'm making, but in fact, you're not talking to the person in the background who's actually killing the deal and you never met that person. And you maybe yep. don't even know what, so so identifying the committee and really spending time with the people that actually are going to influence the decision is really important. This, you know, understanding how the enterprise makes a decision, ultimately yeah. it's not going to be 15 people, but if you have a blind spot on someone, you're really not going to understand the context of the customer. So um, true. So true. And so, hey, um, so you recently started a new role at Capital G. Like sometimes we call this going to the dark side. <laughs> so you're over the dark side now. You're a little company, big company, and now, now you're over there. Can you tell us a bit about that? I don't know if everybody knows about capital. Yeah, Maybe you yeah so it's definitely it. not the dark side. I can, I can make you feel good about that. Uh, <laughs> People uh, talk capital. about you're on the investment side, man. That's different. That's well, different. Let, me, let me tell you more about it. Give me, give me the chance to tell you what it is <laughs> before you label it. <laughs> but uh, Capital G is Alphabet's independent fund. And so at, at, uh, at Alphabet, there's multiple vehicles yeah. to, to fund companies. There's Gradient, there's Google Ventures, and Capital G specializes uh, primarily in data AI analytics and security in the enterprise space. And for me, what's exciting about it is, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a group of really good entrepreneurs, really good investors. We work with companies like Databricks, Didaiku, UiPath, Calibra. And so it's really, for me, it's a continuation of what I've done. You know, I've done small, medium, large organizations. I've done product sales, marketing. And now if I can help organizations scale and get to the next level, you know, it, it allowed me to kind of continue to pursue my goal of becoming a, a useful CEO. So that's why I'm excited about it. It's a uh, 
what, what's great, if I look back at the 25 years, you know, I think I said that earlier uh, in the podcast, when I started, nobody cared about this. Nobody cared about data. It was like a back office so problem. You know, you, you kind of had to worry about it, but if you didn't, uh, you know, now it's front and center. Now you have to think about how do you help build intelligent applications with a high level of quality and trust on your data. So now the executives are really seeing what we saw you know, maybe 20 years ago, even the artificial intelligence opportunity, many people like me that have been in it for a long time, we just feel like this great sense of relief. Like, oh, finally, the stuff that we've been believing for 10 years is not an imagination. It's not like we were. <laughs> so to your point earlier, like building a movement. Yeah, it takes 20 years to build a movement. Uh, but now yeah, yeah. There, there we go. The movement. Like, you know, it's funny because I spent a lot of time in the early part of my career on the database side of things, too. And you're right. Like, there was a moment there where, you know, it just wasn't cool to be doing data yeah. stuff. And man, right now, data stuff is hot. Like, that's kind of what I think is so exciting about what you guys are doing at Capital G is that I remember being in venture-backed startups, we had a cool database thing and like nobody understood it yeah. when we were trying to raise money. And so we, we literally spent time going through like VC by VC by VC and looking at the independent partners and saying, yes. which person in this fund should we pitch so that they have a, we have a hope that they will understand what the heck we were talking about because nobody did at the time. And so I think that's your opportunity there. There's so much cool stuff going on in data. And then you're a group of people that have been doing this stuff for ages. Like that's kind of exciting. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and I invite everyone to uh, reach out to me. You can easily Google me so you can find me. Of course, you can reach out to me. Put some links in the show notes here so people can find you and all that stuff. Yeah. It's a great time to be in data. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. So great. Anyways, I think that's it. Like Bruno, thank you so much for coming. This was so great. Well, thanks for having me. I could talk to you for hours. So I don't even feel like this was a podcast. Like, you know, I, I know we're like, we're like way over time. Here we are at the end. But anyways, like, thanks so much for coming again. Thanks for having me.